Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 15, The Metaphysical Background of the World with Stephen Herod Buner. We speak with Stephen, who is an herbalist, teacher, writer, and general creative person, about how to use the heart as an organ of perception, about following the golden thread, about plants as primary teachers, about pantheistic animism, about becoming your own authority, and about his own life journey. This is our longest episode yet, and we're very privileged and honored to have Stephen on our show. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, we have Stephen Herod Buner on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. It's really a big honor. Oh, thanks, Isaac. I, I'm glad you asked. Yeah, I'm glad you said yes, and it worked out. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so you're you're known for writing a lot of books on like herbal medicine, on brewing, um, and on plant communication, as well as writing and other things. Um, and I'm wondering, uh. Well, in your books, you have little bits of biography. You speak about how you were raised in Texas suburbs, how you ran away at 16, left school and, and went to San Francisco, um, how you started uh, a cabin, you know, you had a cabin in, in Colorado. And I'm wondering what, what was there like a specific moment where you where the plant path called you or was it like a gradual thing with many small moments? Like when did you really get on the plant path? Well, it's um, to just kind of go over that. I was born in Kentucky and lived there till I was 14. And I spent a lot of time in southern Indiana on my great-grandparents' farm. He was a old-time physician that really had used botanic medicines in most of his practice simply because antibiotics and such like things weren't available then. So because I was born in 1952, the world was really different then. Um, there were so many fewer people. Natural ecosystems were a lot healthier. And like most children then, I grew up immersed in what would now be considered very wild landscapes and exposed to um, wild plants, wild animals, and just a sort of a perspective of a climate of mind, you might say, mm -hmm. or an orientation of heart that was deeply connected to nature much differently than the way things are now. So my parents moved us to Texas when I was 14, and the 60s were kind of exploding then. I lived in a really dysfunctional family like yeah, most people in America, and um, so I filed emancipation papers when I was 16, declaring me legally an adult, and then I just left home and went to um, California, and I got there um, when I was 16, um, and just at the beginning of um, 1969, wow. and there was a lot of excitement back yeah. then. I mean... Ever since Reagan came in, people have been focused more and more on STEM training and kind of reductive, mechanicalistic linear thought. 
and the liberal arts and the humanities have been very um, thinned out, you might say. But back then, there was still that emphasis on exploring the world and developing sort of a really deep liberal education. And so for me, the idea of finding out what you wanted to do with your life, what a person and the deepest parts of them felt compelled to do was still very much part of things. There was many people there not so focused on uh, making a lot of money, but rather becoming fulfilled as human beings. And the humanistic potential movement was very huge. And there were just lots and lots of fascinating people alive then, most of whom have died now. And I was thinking about that the other day, you know, looking around like what amazing people would I look to now? And there's very, very few. But back well, that's then, where, I, that's I, where I'm calling I, you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of fucks with my self-identity, actually, a little bit, <laughs> to be in that category with Buckminster Fuller or Margaret Mead or all of those people that I got to meet and learn from back then. So, you know, and then I moved to, um, when I was 20, the high mountains of Colorado into very wild landscapes. And so you might say that I was already primed just because of my birth and my natural inclinations to be closely connected with nature. And then, um, you know, I just was sort of pursuing all of that. My, I had such an extreme sensitivity of self that I was very um, uh, easily moved by or responsive to or sensitive to the meanings inside things. So, you know, the meaning inside of an office building or uh, a schoolroom or things like that, there's a kind of an aesthetic wasteland to that. And yeah. It's very different in a wild landscape or a healthy forest. There's an entirely different climate of mind that's there, and I found in those climates of mind, I felt more whole, closer to the self, most essentially me, which was inculcated in, in me anyway by my great-grandparents, mm -hmm. that sort of sensitivity and um, paying attention to that. And so I spent a lot of time in those wild landscapes, and eventually what happened was I just started having these... Um, astonishingly deep experiences with hmm. plants where they were communicating directly to me. And now we start to get sort of in a territory which is very alien to the American way of thinking. And, yeah. um, you know, so, and it was also hard for me because I'd been immersed in sort of that uh, dissociated mentation and rationalist reductionism of, America, and like most people are even more so now, and the idea that the dead come to visit us later in life when we need that kind of help, or that the wildness of the world would speak to us, helping us find our direction in life, those things were very common and are still very common in at least half the world. Yeah. They were very common in America and in Europe until this sort of rationalist pathology began taking over everything. So there's kind of a decolonization of the self that had to occur for me, and I think for 
most people, and you know I found um, support for that process in the words of actually tribal peoples who had developed their whole plant awareness directly from the plants themselves. They were quite clear about that. Now, I didn't learn it through trial and error. I, it came to me in a dream. The plant told me its uses. And then when you start looking at it, that was my first book, Sacred Plant Medicine, looking at how consistent it was across cultures around the world for these communications and visionary experiences that people had, that it turns out that the uses of the plants were identical to what rationalists have found in laboratories. And so, you know, they can't, the rationalists can't quite figure it out. It kind of screws with their mindset, but basically it began to affirm for me that there was a, a very different way to find information about the world than that sort of trial and error reduction dissection of the world that we've been involved in so long and that involved a, a close companionship with living things of the earth, our other kin, and that didn't really result in the kind of desecration and destruction of healthy ecosystems the way this other approach does. So that's really been the core of my work all along and the core of my um, path in life. And every book that I write, even though they seem to be somewhat unrelated, they're all basically part of that same dynamic. They all come out of that exact thing. They're just different facets of um, my approach to life, you might say. Wow. So did the plants teach you how to use your heart as an organ of perception? Is it mostly the plants as your teachers? <laughs> That's a, well, they kind of insisted on it, but really the, <laughs> I mean, the, the natural world insists on people waking up their hearts, and that's part of the problem. We've been trained to not listen to what our hearts are telling us, to how an environment feels, and yet every one of us has had that experience. We go with a friend to a restaurant, we walk into the restaurant, and then we sort of look at each other and go, boy, this place feels weird, let's leave. And it's yeah. that thing that I'm talking about. It's a natural capacity of mind. It's um, the information, the response of our hearts to the touch of the world upon us. And in ancient and indigenous cultures, that was developed uh, to the same extent that we've developed our rational mind as a very sophisticated organ of perception. So, But my um, relationship with that happened um, in a different way which was because of my dysfunctional family. My mother was uh, a cruel person and unkind, and she became pregnant at 17, you know, having wild sex for the first time in the back of my father's car. And her parents were born-again Christians, very fundamentalist and very socially prominent. So an out-of-marriage uh, pregnancy was like, well, it was the end of the world, basically. And so yeah. <laughs> it ruined her whole life, and their abortion wasn't a possibility, so my parents got married. Uh, two people that were never meant to be uh, companions on the life path. So I was the symbol of my mother's life being ruined. Mm -hmm. So whenever she said, I love you, what she really meant was, I hate you. Mm -hmm. But my father's mother 
whenever she said I love you, what she meant was I love you. So right from the beginning, I was exposed to, you might say, similar external behaviors, but the meaning inside them right. was entirely different. So, And because my mother's behavior could at any time become aberrational, I began to pay really close attention just sort of naturally to the subtle shifts of meaning in the way she stood or the way she moved or her intonation or whatever. And then when I would go be with my great-grandparents or my grandmother, there was an entirely different thing. So in a way, it was really perfect because I was already naturally sensitive, but it's quite often true that the play, the scenario in which we're born tends to enhance our natural capacities of self um, in the midst of that kind of dysfunction. I never would have had that level of sensitivity being developed the way it was without my mother being as crazy and cruel as she was. So, you know, I have a better understanding of that dynamic at this point rather than just feeling victimized by this crazy person whose life was ruined because uh, she couldn't get birth control. So then when I go into the world, I became naturally sensitive to how everything felt and the meanings inside things. So you might say I was really primed for being in wild landscapes and noticing the complex communications that go on in wild landscapes simply from the shifts of subtle feeling states that I experienced because that, you know, what that indicated was a movement from uh, meaning to meaning to meaning, just very much like if we're sharing sentences that, um, you know, it goes from meaning to meaning to meaning in our dialogue, but out there they don't use, the wildness of the world doesn't use the same kind of linguistics we do, but they do engage in um, very sophisticated communication. So then when I started moving deeper into plant, the plant world and plant relationship, you might say that capacity was already highly um, refined um, and ready to be refined even more. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I think children have kind of an innate sense of perception, but as we school them, they kind of are growing out of that. So do you have any ideas or tips on how raising children in the society to have, to hold on to that innate sense of perception? Um, any ideas for parents? Well, of course I have tons of ideas about it, but <laughs> the, the problem that we're facing, of course, which is a lot more severe than it was in 1952, is that most of America lives in a virtual reality. Now, we're not used to thinking of it that way, and people are all into these virtual reality helmets and stuff. But our descriptions of the world have very little relationship to the world as it actually is. So, for instance, the fact that we're taught that human beings are the only intelligent species on the planet, which always, for me, raises the concern, like, how many people have you met? You know, whenever anybody says that, or really like the first time the universe has become conscious of itself, and I said, well, if that's true, the universe is still awfully stupid, you know. But, but the thing is that 
all the things we've been taught that plants are in sentient, that there there's no real communication or intelligence out there, you know, that the world is a ball of resources hurtling around the sun that we can extract from infinitely as much as we want, and on and on and on. None of that stuff is true. So we live in this virtual reality in which the moment that people start to school, they're trained in that perspective. And, um, you know, for instance, if a, a young child would say that their dead grandmother came back to talk to them in the night, for instance, they would be, um, they go, oh, honey, you're just making that up. But what's true is that in every culture on earth, that's a common experience, even in the United States. It's just yeah. people are too ashamed to speak about it. And so, um, you know, in the Africans, this one culture, they said, uh, they said, somebody said, well, do you pray to God? And they go, oh, no. No, we don't pray to God. God's very far away. God's busy with all kinds of other things. You know, and, uh, you know, we're too small. And they say, well, who do you pray to? And they go, we, we pray to the ancestors because, you know, they're the closest um, to us in, in their experience, and, and we still matter to them a lot. So they'll, they'll come and help us. And that makes a lot of sense, but, you know, we are very far away from that. So, you know, and there's been a lot of stuff done about, what would be healthier for children? Um, nobody pays any attention to it, despite <laughs> the mounting evidence, but that children need to spend a lot of time alone outside mm -hmm. and supervise that they need to be in wild landscapes, that they need to be exposed to dirt and dust and trees and plants, that they Frogs. need to, you know, just that whole thing, that they need to be able to explore whatever pulls their curiosity and interest without a lot of messing about from adults. And the thing that they definitely don't need to do is have backpacks full of 50 pounds of books that they're yeah. hauling around the school in third grade. So, But to change all of that is very, very difficult. And when parents try to move outside of that frame now to give children that experience, quite often now they're arrested. I mean, it's just absurd. You let your 10-year-old walk to school and you get arrested and the child taken away by uh, by social services. That's why Leonor, um, Leonor Scarnazzi, I forget her last name, but she started Free Range Kids because of that problem. And so parents are not only are, is it harder for them to do it, but there's also the threat of government action against them if they try to yeah. break out of that system of virtual reality. So well, what we're bas basically looking at is that you have to be willing to break significant social rules to be able to do that. Yeah. yeah. I, I was, I had the, the great um, joy of being homeschooled until I was 14 and I decided to go to high school and I was allowed to play out in the woods behind the house. I was out by the creek all the time catching frogs and turtles, and I'm just very grateful for that experience. And I think that's it makes it makes a huge difference. And yeah. There's, you know, another thing that, that often comes to my mind is uh, this was a study done with in a, some tribal nation in the United States. I don't remember which one. And so, of course, all the kids are going to school now, and you know, just like everybody else. 
And so these guys went and talked to them and said, uh, you know, who do you think knows more about the natural world, your grandmother or your biology teacher in school? And all of them said the biology teacher. And they all discounted their grandmother's and grandparents' learning because they were unschooled, right? But then the guys went through the grandparents, the grandmother, they'd take around and she could identify you know, considerably more plants than the biology teacher knew what their uses were, knew the, you know, and so they showed the difference and the kids were just amazed because they had absorbed that context or that virtual reality, you might say, that their grandparents were ignorant because they hadn't gone through this sort of reductionistic learning process. And there's a and we see that everywhere now. There's a denial of working people that's very common now, a denigration of them, and that their knowledge base is somehow inferior to uh, more stupid than people that have gone to Harvard. In my experience, it's exactly the opposite. I mean, there's no more stupid person in the world than somebody who's got a graduate degree from Yale or Harvard. <laughs> You know, because they just don't know anything about the real world. What they know about is the virtual world that they've been trained in. So, yeah, I'm not how to correct this. I think what's happening is that as Earth systems begin to spiral out of control more and more, the system itself will begin to break, as we've been seeing in the United States with the COVID virus and uh, and a lot of other things that are going on. And people will be forced to deal with the earth as it is rather than how they've been taught that it is. And it's going to be a very hard transition. We're in for rough times, really, like every culture that's ever been has that they, when they've dissociated from the planet like this. Yeah. So that brings me to the question about experts and how it seems like, especially over the last couple of years, people who question the experts or try to think for themselves are considered uh, anti-science or lumped in, you know, with, with uh, the Trump, Trump extremists or so on. But it's, especially over the last couple of years, it's like, you can't question the, the, the party line of the science and progress. So how, how do you have any tips or how do you, um, develop your own authority, like become your own authority or learn how to trust yourself. And is that, you know, how dangerous is that? (laughs) How dangerous is that? Oh, to think for yourself? That's really dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) But the, uh, the thing is we've been caught in this sort of simplistic duality um, and it's sophomore philosophy kind of stuff where Science, when they say science, it's exactly like saying God said or something. And then the people on the other side, whatever they say, it's like, you know, God said. And what's really true is a big part of the problem is that, for one thing, science is just a tool, Mm -hmm. like a hammer or something. And if you listen to the way people talk about science, they're actually attributing to that word intelligent agency. Mm-hmm. You know, we were trying to discover something new to science. Well, science isn't a, isn't a person, okay? Or we were just doing what science told us to do. Well, uh, science isn't a person. 
<laughs> right? Science is a tool. And once you start noticing that, it becomes this very strange kind of way of thinking. And the thing that people have forgotten is that what's important are the scientists. Okay, it's, it's their kind of world that they're dealing with. And scientists are just people, only more so in some ways. You know, they're <laughs> subject to this, the same kinds of problems that everybody is. They're, they're afraid. They have money considerations. They don't want to lose their job. They've got mortgages. There's only certain places they can get money to do their research. You yeah, know, funded and, by corporations a lot of times. Right, and the corporations have gotten a lot more involved in controlling scientists now than they were 50 years ago. They hire most of them. So scientists basically, um, they're no longer much involved in the search for knowledge about the world. They're involved in stuff that makes money for them or other people. And there's still some scientists who are more, um, that they're serving something outside themselves mm-hmm. rather than, you know, something more noble or uplifting outside themselves that they believe in. But most of them do not. And so, you know, I've looked at science for a very long time, and I have a lot of problems with the way scientists go about their work. Uh, you know, some of the things that are left out is there's other kinds of science than the kind that we do in the United States, that mm-hmm. sort of reductive linearity that has a knee-jerk skepticism toward any kind of feeling response to the earth, that's fairly new in the last 50, 60 years. But it's become the kind of the dominant orientation. And you have to understand that the kind of approach that most scientists are trained in now is pathological. They're trained, you know, not to not to feel love for trees, not to um, have emotions if the trees they're studying die. They're trained to manipulate other life forms without any sense of remorse. There's a certain glibness in what they do, a certain uh, very little self-questioning about their own moral um, orientation and the it's way. It's in the name of science. Right, in the name of science. But if you look at those, the qualities that are developed in young scientists, it's exactly the the definition of a psychopath. The inability to feel love and caring for others, the inability to feel empathy, the inability to feel remorse, and that kind of dissociation, what they call an objectivity, is really uh, a lack of um, affect or response of the heart to what's being presented to them. And that particular kind of science produces the results that we see all around us and as you know in the destruction of the ecospheres of the planet so that there's something significantly pathological and wrong about that particular approach and the fact that we are unable to question it and have a, a social dialogue in our culture about the limitations of that orientation is itself pathological i'm a big fan of of what they used to mean by science and of that training of the mind to be um, elegant in its capacity to reason. But you can't turn it on to scientists themselves without um, social problems. 
and and that's a really big part of the issue. And so a lot of the people that are responding to scientists with this very negative, um, angry um, response is the fact that there's something wrong in what scientists are doing now that they can't and won't won't hear. We what we want them to be is more human. We want them to be no different than a plumber, or a dentist, or you know, a carpenter, just a guy or a woman that's working on stuff because that's what they do, and they've got this human element to it where we cannot just sit around and uh, you know shoot the shit and be with each other. Yeah. But they can't do that, and you know, there's a great. I'm working on a book now called The Earth Grief about the journey into and through ecological loss. And uh, I found a lot of great papers and a lot of exasperating ones, but there's uh, this one woman, Phyllis Wendell, I think her name is, she wrote this paper called The Ecology of Grief. And she said that whenever she mentions, as a scientist, her feelings of grief about the dogwood trees she studies, that they're dying off, she's accused of being inappropriate, anthropomorphic to being projecting on the outside world and that her grief is shut down. But she's also a chaplain and spends time working with the dying. And she says, when I sit around with other chaplains, we can easily talk about grief, but scientists cannot talk about what they feel without being shut down. And that's a serious problem. So I don't know how to fix this. What we're, what we're really doing is running into the limits of that paradigm. Right. It's not working very well, and it's earth yeah, systems are collapsing. And so basically what's, what's happening is the older forms of science that did not approach it this way are needing to be rekindled, um, re-brought into the world again. And that's one of the things I've been working on for a long time. Yeah. So how do you become your own authority? How do you um, learn how to trust yourself and your own uh, perceptions in your heart? Follow the <laughs> well, That's a long journey because everything <laughs> that we do, we're, you know, the immediate response from outside people is um, not very supportive of that. Yeah. And um, it's like when I decided to become a writer, um, writing is one of the last free professions on the planet. and uh, But when I decided to become a writer, it was astonishing that virtually everybody I met took it upon themselves to, you know, make sure that I wouldn't believe that I could ever do it. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I would see that, that with other things. Like if I happened to mention that... Um, you know, something felt funny or that there was not an aesthetic. See, I've learned language to talk about it now. When I was in my 20s, I was horribly uneducated about communication. But if I would say there's something wrong with the way a building was being um, redone, rehabbed, because the aesthetic qualities were being damaged or the way a conversation was going um, or something like that, People would always generally turn it back on me. It's a form of gaslighting where, you know, 
Um, it's kind of like you go up to somebody and you say, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I think there's something wrong with what you're doing. And they say, oh, you have a lot of anger issues. I think you should work on that. I mean, that's yeah. what it's like. Yeah, right? And everybody's projecting. Run into, everybody's <laughs> run into that. Yeah. So when you start orienting yourself to become your own expert, it takes a long time to establish and just inside yourself a sense of authority mm-hmm. um, because yeah. you're going against the flow of things, against the current. And it took me, you know, many decades to do that because trying to talk about that plants are sentient, that there's this other way to learn about the medicinal uses of plants, I ran into nothing but um, problems trying to talk about that, except when I went to herbal gatherings. And the community herbalists are better than environmentalists, better than people in the shaman movements, better than any place I've been, because they actually work with living plants. Mm -hmm. They harvest them. They give them to people who are ill, and the people get well. And so the truth is, once you've been healed by a plant, everything begins to change. Mm -hmm. Because you realize that there's this whole dimension of life that nobody's talking about, or if they are, they're dismissing it. And superstitious bullshit. So, you know, then, but the community herbalists, they all knew a couple of things that I've never found in any other community. They knew they didn't know very much. <laughs> and they weren't, you know, which is really important yeah. to understand how little we really know. And they were humble. Yeah. And they also, because they'd been saved by a plant, mm-hmm. They knew there were forces at work outside themselves greater than human beings. And they were also, they loved the earth. It was almost entirely women, 90, 95% women. And they were generally, um, had not gone through a lot of schooling, just high school, maybe college. And um, they just loved the feeling of earth and the feeling of plants. And so this is, and when they healed people, they wanted the people to get well. They didn't care about some theory or paradigm or something. They just were trying to serve. Mm. And so in that context, me talking about that was well received. And I was really lucky that there was a, a niche that I could go to a place in our culture that wanted to hear what I have to say. And my whole career came out of that because Rosemary Gladstar invited me to speak at her conferences. And I don't know what I would have done without that. And that sort of um, helped me on my way, not only to make money, but to to also, there was an affirmation of what I was talking about because they'd all had similar experiences. They just didn't talk about it because they were tired of being shamed for it. So there was a gradual, long process of me finding, creating another theoretical paradigm that was closer to the real world, the earth the way it actually is, and learning how to um, uh, anchor it inside myself and slowly let go of the old virtual paradigm in which I'd been schooled. And that's a very hard process for people yeah. because we internalize 
um, censors. We internalize other people's voices that shame us constantly. Mm-hmm. And becoming our own authority means, you know, because there's not a to be be your own authority means that you're not arrogant. Arrogance <laughs> yeah. always arrogance always hides um, self worth problems mm-hmm. that are inside the person, a feeling of inferiority of some sort, and you know. So I found people like Vaclav Havel, for instance, um, that is a truly humble person and talked about these sorts of things all of the time. And we all of us need mentors that we can go to when times are difficult because there's always dark times that all of us encounter when we wake up in the night and we're unsure of ourselves. And, um, you know, then the the worry weasels come out and start gnawing at, our, at everything we've thought and done. And um, so it's just a long process of, decolonizing our minds, but also decolonizing our hearts. Yeah. So, Stephen, speaking of theoretical frameworks and finding new ones, um, animism now has kind of become a buzzword. It's being spoken about in a lot of places, especially in the market. What was that? I missed, I missed the phrase. Animism, basically. Oh, animism, right. Yeah. It's been, it's, been, it's uh, gaining a lot of momentum. And I know that you consider yourself a pantheistic animist um do you think you could speak about that like what is pantheistic animism and how well animism is simply the belief that the earth and everything on the earth is alive and aware and sentient now this that particular belief is the oldest belief that human beings have had since Mm -hmm. human beings have been for hundreds of thousands of years, and there's many places on the planet where people still believe that. It's the oldest religious form that there is, and Christianity and Islam and things like that are much later creations, and um, both of them are pretty much anti-animist at their core. But this animist thing, I mean, Stephen Harding, who's a scientist I really admire who's worked at Schumacher College in England for 30 years and worked with James Lovelock on the Gaia Hypothesis and a bunch of things like that. He wrote a book called Animist Earth, and there's more and more scientists of of the kind that I like. They consider themselves holistic scientists or old-time natural philosophers, really, and Mm, um, they're talking about that more and more. And one of the reasons why the whole Gaia Hypothesis was important was it immediately caused or created or generated an animist perspective about the planet rather than it being just an insentient group of resources we can extract from. It became a living thing, and which is why the majority of scientists hated the whole concept. But they found over time that the Earth does, in fact, act very much like a living organism and... You know, they call that now Earth system science. People that are into Gaia, which is different, they don't say the Earth acts like a living organism. They say it is a living organism. Yeah. And so there's still that sort of conflict there. But the in deeply animist cultures, and then they look at um, everything on the Earth as being alive and aware intelligent, able of communication, and so that 
human beings are just one of the kin that sit in the circle of life, and so we have we establish a relationship with the livingness of Earth and with all of these living beings, and there's a communication dynamic that happens. And because, I mean, one of the nicest ways I heard of it, it was, I don't remember which tribe it was, this guy said to his son, he said, um, you must treat the plants as if they are human beings, the way you treat human beings. Mm-hmm. And you must tell them what you need them to do for you before you go to harvest their medicine. And when you do so, you will not be embarrassed in your healing. I always like that. And there's this the concept of treating everything that is the way you would treat a human being. Um, and I assume we're talking not about a sociopathic killer <laughs> at this point. <laughs> but, you know, that that kind of conveys that concept. But it's one that occurs naturally. Children naturally are that way. They sit under trees talking to flowers and plants. And in in traditional cultures, that um, way of being just simply matured and developed as the child grew. And this is exactly what we're trained out of during schooling. And the interesting thing is you have to be actively trained out of that over and over and over and over again because it's the natural response of the heart of the human being to the livingness of the world they're in. They have to be trained to be pathologically dissociated over many years because if you don't do that, then they naturally have an animist response. And that whole thing, when you have that feeling response to um, the world around you as if they're your kin, you tend to be naturally careful with how you approach them and how you treat them. And if you believe there's nothing out there, you become actively careless. And so we see the, you know, the consequences of that every place. So animism really is, that's what animism is. And pantheism is, you know, there's ways that they talk about it. I don't really agree with, they might say, and from a Christian orientation, you believe in multiple gods, you know. Um, but what's really true is that there are powers in the universe, as Vaclav Havel once put it, that it is wise to not blaspheme against. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we haven't been here that long. And you see that the entire world economic system is shut down just from a simple virus. And our belief before that, and it sort of still is, is that we're superior to any virus. I mean, there's no brain, there's no opposable thumb, and look, they don't have any degrees either. <laughs> <laughs> no harm so, so, and then so we're going, well, we can create these things, and then we can kill it, and we can be immune, and then we can go on as we were before. But the whole point is, we shouldn't be going on the way we were before. It's not functional. It's not going to work. And as I've been writing, I've been writing about the emergence of um, resistant pathogens for 30 years now. And there's only a matter of time before so many of them emerge that the medical systems that we use now can't deal with. I mean, really, population problems have a horrible way of solving themselves, and that's what's going to happen because we're not living in a sustainable way. But so really, the pantheistic approach is 
understanding that when you're moving through the world with that sensitivity, you come upon a great mountain, and there's no question in a person's mind when they do that, that the mountain is a power far greater than a human being. I mean, yeah, human beings can blow it up or mine the hell out of it, but in its intact state, it is far greater than a human being. The earth itself, we're in relation to the earth, we're just about the same as white blood cells are to the human body. We're very tiny, and the earth has been going on 4.5 billion years. It's learned a lot, and we're we shouldn't blaspheme against that. We shouldn't treat it with contempt or disrespect because then bad stuff happens. So I basically look at pantheism in this context as simply having respect for powers far greater than the human being. Intelligence is far greater than human beings have been or ever will be. And you put those two things together, and that's basically pantheistic animism. That makes a lot of sense. So this leads me to the question of what do you see as the uh, ecological role of humans? Well, the, you know, I wrote about that in my book, Plant Intelligence yeah. in the Imaginal Realm, and it's a difficult thing to get into. That's why the book was so long, because <laughs> I had to, you know, build out this, besides the fact that authorial blokes, my middle name, you know, why use one word when you can use ten? If only I was paid by the word, I'd be a lot richer. <laughs> but the the thing is that that one of the most important questions of our time has never been asked, and that is, what is the ecological function of the human species? Now, every species that emerges from the ecological um, fabric of the planet is expressed to fulfill a specific ecological function. And it's not like human beings are exempt from that. On Earth, there is no... There is no exemption from the ecological realities of this place. We are ecological beings on an ecological planet, and that is the foundational truth of everything that's here. And so I, you know, I thought about that for many decades, and sort of the thing that really sparked it was when I heard Buckminster Fuller say, we're like bees, you see, bees who go out looking for honey, not knowing that we're performing cross-pollination. And then I put that together with the fact that basically we're mobile rhizospheres. We carry, you know, the Lynn Margulis' work with symbiogenesis, showing that every complex life form on this planet is merely bacteria in a um, more innovative form, more complex developed form. And then understanding that the bacterial membrane of the planet is the root form of life on this place, and everything emerges out of that in more complex forms that are designed to um, make the the balance point of life on this planet more adaptable to change. And um, then realizing that how incredibly, you know, some people would say life on Earth started because um, bacteria seeded this planet. That's an interesting idea. And then if you look at Margolis' work and everything else, then more thoughts begin to occur. And then realizing that every time we send something into space, 
no matter how much people try to make sure that there's no microbial presence on the satellites or anything else we send up, there always is. So it's all it's exactly like we're like bees, you see, and we're sending out all of these uh, microbially loaded um, machines that we've made into the universe, onto the planets around here. And, you know, they've even found that um, the microbes that were left on the moon when the moon landings happened, those things are still alive. Mm-hmm. They haven't died. They've brought some back, and they're, they're still alive. And there's so many kinds of forms of life here that can survive for a long time in space like that are on apparently unliving planets. And you look at the fact that Earth took a billion years to form its first life, then, you know, you're looking at a kind of a lifespan or a a thinking span that's very, very, very long. And when you're looking at human beings with an 80-year-old lifespan pronouncing on you know, the functions of things. It's just pretty ridiculous. So to me, we were, and if you look at the history of Earth's innovation, what they call evolution, which I don't determine I don't particularly like, but the the innovation in sexual reproduction here has been absolutely stunning over the last, you know, four billion years. And, you know, the pollinator... Um, pollination and seed exchange and everything like that is, and split gender physiology, all these things have been these great innovations. And here it is that we've all of a sudden been driven to create a technological civilization that sends all of this stuff out into space where we're basically seeding microbes throughout the solar system and the universe itself or at least our part of the solar, or part of the universe, our galaxy anyway, mm-hmm. then it becomes very interesting that, you know, and people ask, well, why did you climb to the top of the mountain? They go, well, I just felt like I had to. <laughs> why did you go to space? I felt like I had to. Yeah. They don't really know why. And what's interesting is right as we, you know, it's very much like a plant, too. A plant uses up all of its stored energy to set seed, and then it looks very bedraggled and kind of dies back for a while. And the Earth is looking a bit bedraggled now. We've pulled out all of these resources to create a technological civilization, which could send all of these things into space. And right at that moment that that's happening, we're reaching peak everything, peak water, peak insect die-offs, peak oil, peak everything, and everything's beginning to sort of collapse at this point. And I just think that's all very intriguing. So to me, we're just an agent of life um, spreading itself, of reproduction, and that's basically our function. And once that function is done, we'll die back just like everything does after a while. Wow. So we don't have that much more time. I mean, I we could ask you questions for hours, but we don't want to take too much of, of your time and energy. But we do have a couple more questions for you. Oh, um, sure. I have plenty of time. It's no problem. Okay, cool. 
So one thing that I, that I'm really interested in, and I study a lot of different things, too, um, is the imaginal realm. And imaginal is also one of those buzzwords that's that's getting very popular in the fringes. Um, and from reading you, I've you know traced it back through James Hillman and Henri Corbin, but to me, it also seems kind of like what the occultists talk about as the astral plane, or what Jung talks about as active imagination. But what do you what what is the imaginal realm to you, and like how do you interact with it? Well, there's a lot of people that have talked about this over the years. Part of the problem that we have, those of us who are not reductive um, mechanicalists, is that our philosophical paradigm has not been sophisticatedly developed. And that's one of the things that needs to happen. And the other thing is that it needs to be developed in such a way that um, anybody can understand it, that the language needs to be um, not esoteric. And I'm a big fan of, or you might say an unfan of esoteric language because it's off-putting. Imaginal perception is a very simple thing. It's it's just a form of daydreaming in a sense, and everybody has done that. And so it's important to not have it be mysterious or anything like that. Mm, yeah. And all all artists engage in the imaginal perception. All writers when they're writing as long as they're not hacks, you know, people that are just typists of words, that's one thing. But yeah. people that are artists that are truly writing they go into kind of a dream state and, you know, they sit down in front of the paper, but they get out of their rational mind. It kind of goes to sleep and some other part of them takes over. It's very similar to the part of us that daydreams, only they're headed toward a goal rather than just sort of floating in a sort of a daydream thing. And, you know, as Black Elk, the Oglala Sioux Holy Man said, he said, uh, there's a little door that opens inside and something comes through from somewhere else. If I thought I did it myself, then it would never happen again. Right? So the rational mind kind of goes to sleep and you're in this dreaming state and you start to write a story. And what most people don't understand is that when we read, we go into kind of a dream state when we read where we forget everything around us. We're so in that world, right? But what's true is that the writer is also in that world as they write the story. And the story actually, in many ways, creates itself. And this sounds very strange, but most writers know that it's true. The rational mind only comes back into play later when you're editing and you're refining it and you're using your sophisticated tools to make it, to basically compose it as, as a finished work of art. So the same thing happens when people are doing what's called science, where, I mean, Barbara McClintock, which I wrote a lot about, she was won the Nobel Prize for her work on corn transposons. But she was really clear about this. She said, I went no place that the corn did not first tell me to go. And she would work with the corn. She was so immersed in it that the corn would actually begin to tell her about itself, mm. that these um, understandings would just emerge seemingly of their own accord inside of her, and then she would pursue that and understand these deeper aspects 
of the corn. And she was completely clear that, you know, corn transposons, how all of this stuff works, it's not this reductive thing that everybody talks about. The DNA is a flexible organ of the cell. It changes itself, and it changes itself in response to communications that come from outside of it, from the earth, from the landscape in which it lives. And so then, you know, I started looking at scientists, and many of them also talk about this. They'll be focused, 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 focused on the study, and all of a sudden they'll kind of go into this dream state, and these understandings will emerge seemingly of their own accord. That's the what imaginal realm, imaginal perception, imaginal thinking is all about. Writers learn to do it more intentionally. They can't control it. They can what they can do is create the state of mind in which it occurs and then learn to trust it and not mess with it because that part of the self really dislikes being told what to do. The writer's block is basically when you had an argument with that part of you and it says, I'm not I'm not gonna play anymore. <laughs> go, screw your, go screw yourself and you're like, I'm really sorry. I'll do anything you want, you know. Uh, you know, it's like making up with your spouse when you've had a really, really bad argument. And uh so that sort of thing and then you read work by Bill Mollison or George Washington Carver or just on and on and on, and what they're all doing, they're doing a kind of science, a kind of relation yeah. to the world, using imaginal perception. Uh, Masanobu Fukuoka, the great Japanese farmer, is one of the primary examples of someone who understood how to do that in relationship to the landscape and the plants he was using to grow food that exceeded industrial yields without using any pesticides or fertilizers or anything else. And, you know, as he said, oh, I thought when I proved I could do that over and over again, that the scientists would listen to me, but they didn't. What do I know? I'm just a simple farmer. Yeah. You know, no degrees from Harvard there. No, actually, he did have a bachelor's degree in uh, something huh. or other, but he got that before World War II, I think back in the 20s. That doesn't count. And, uh, but he was walking, his whole thing came out of one day he was walking along and he paused by this magnificent tree, you know. And sometimes when you're near like a really huge ancient tree, you get this sort of feeling of yeah. um, maturity and wisdom, like you're standing next to a Buddhist master or something. And he was standing there and all of a sudden he noticed that, you know, nobody had to use pesticides or pruning or anything else for this tree to grow. And then he thought, what if I learned how to channel that energy of the earth itself into all of the plants that I grow? And that's what he spent the rest of his life doing. And so that's a moment of insight that he then spent his lifetime learning how to perfect and to use his imaginal perception to... Um, do this kind of science and this work with growing food that everybody thought was impossible. Wow. So um, you've spoken or written about experiences with uh, the spirits of plants, and that's through the imaginal realm? Like, Well, it's kind of like the same thing. Like uh, um, the first time it became very... Um, Explicit, you might say, was I'd been working with plants for a number of years already on this land we lived in uh, 
9,000 feet in Boulder, Colorado, in the Rocky Mountains. It had never been farmed or logged or ranched or anything. It was um, as it had been for at least 30,000 years, and it was wow. very mild and healthy. And so um, one day I just had had, I mean, I don't know where the thought came from. One day, just sitting there, all of a sudden this thought emerges and goes, oh, I have to learn the medicinal uses of all these plants on this land. Now, that's a weird thought. I hadn't even thought about anything even remotely like that for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I found, you know, most herbalists are poor, and I found one in town that seemed like an agreeable person. And I said, oh, I could pay you $100 to come up and walk around with me on my land and show me all the plants. And so, of course, they immediately did, you know. And yeah. then so <laughs> that sort of yeah that sort of started this process, and then I was so um, that's a long story which I'll skip most of that. But the, I was so enamored by the experiences I was having that I decided to spend every day um, for many years sitting with the plants, and I would spend two to seven hours every day wow. doing that. And they became my primary teachers. And so a couple of years into this, I was, um, and I would just let my feet take me wherever they wanted to go. And I um, was walking along and felt drawn to this small pine tree that was covered with usnea lichen, which is a lichen that grows you know, throughout the northern hemisphere. It's a, a very prolific plant. And I sat down in front of this pine tree. And I was just sort of focused on it. My my eyes were drawn to the usnea lichen, and I just started focusing on it more. And my eyes sort of became like magnifying lenses, and I was drawn down to the plant. The plant was like uh, uh, huge, like uh, redwoods or something. And I'm looking at it and um, just sort of caught in it. And then all of a sudden, um, all of that disappeared. And I was in this kind of a dream state, and I saw this young man walking toward me from kind of far away, and uh, his hair is kind of wild, and he's dressed in these incredibly colorful clothes, and he gets up close to me, and I see that his hair is actually green. It's the usnea lichen, and he's he's very ancient looking when he gets up. His eyes are very ancient, and he gets up close to me and bends over and looks in my face, and he says, ah, you've been sitting with me in a good way. And I just wanted to, to tell you that the reason why usnea is good medicine for people's lungs is that it's medicine uh, for the lungs of the planet, the trees. I just wanted you to know that. And then he kind of pauses and just watches me to make sure, to see how I'm taking it in. And then he sort of nods his head and he smiles and then he walks away. And then I kind of gradually come back to myself. And I go like, oh, that was pretty pretty amazing, you know, what I do with this. And so I went and looked up usnea, and it turns out it's uh, really good for treating lung problems. And so I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And that's when I started studying, you know, ethnobotanical reports from indigenous people that had learned the uses of plants before European contact with their tribes. And every one of them described events exactly like that over and over and over and over again. And Black Elk, even in Black Elk Speaks, has a long um, uh, description of that kind of thing happening to him. And that's when I started going, ah, there's this whole other way of 
finding out information about the world that's very, very different than what I've been told. And so that continued on um, for many, many, many years, and it still does from time to time when I'm focused deeply on something, those kind of moments still occur. Um, I suppose part of the reason why is I've prepared the soil and made it a welcome place for that sort of thing to occur. And the thing that has to happen, of course, is um, you have to find a, a language, a way to speak about it. You have to understand the scenarios in which you can speak about it, how you can speak about it. You know, if I started running around the Boulder, Colorado, <laughs> dressed in the sheet, going, Eureka, you know, the plants have told me, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not going to go over well. No. You know, because when you do this, you become like a pink monkey. There was this old study, I don't know if it's anecdotal or not, it's a rather grim science story, as many of them are, but they, scientists supposedly took this monkey and uh, dyed his, his hair pink and put him in to a cage full of brown monkeys, and the brown monkeys totally freaked out and killed him immediately. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Well, it's scientists. You know, they torture the world to get information. Yeah. But in any event, it's a nice metaphor for the fact that if we become pink monkeys too vividly, then the rest of the brown monkeys then start going, you know, I don't think I like that guy. Yeah. So we we have to learn how to exist in multiple worlds and to move easily from one to the other because um, we're trying to change a really deeply embedded paradigm and way of thought. And people's self-identity is very deeply connected to that paradigm. They're, the way they think of the world, the way they orient themselves in space and time. And so if that underlying thing is disturbed too intensely, they become very afraid and they get very upset. And I've found that it's possible to talk to almost anybody, but about all of this sorts of thing um, by being able to use their own language or their own frame of reference to talk about it. But it took a long time to learn how to do that. And and really radical reductionist, knee-jerk skeptics, it's not really possible to talk to them about this. Our really intense evangelical Christians who hate the idea of animism or, or any other kind of orientation toward the world. But most people have had experiences somewhat like this in some form or some fashion. So mm -hmm. it's kind of, there's a, a necessity for an understanding compassion when we approach people who have been disenfranchised from themselves. And uh, because I remember what that was like. Yeah. And uh, they uh, don't have any necessity to be shamed for for the place that they're in, you know. Hmm. So, Stephen, um in, in talking about this and talking about uh, writing in uh, following the golden thread and sitting with plants um, you know, in creative endeavors, I'm a musician, I do this a lot too in, in that realm. Um, it, it seems like when you're following the golden thread and you're following your interest, 
sometimes you run up into boredom, for, in, for instance, and there seems to be a, a time and a place for like sustained effort, but also uh, there is like the, the danger of falling into like overdoing it or uh, destroying that link or like overtaxing it. So as somebody who's been in doing these kind of things for decades, do you have advice for people who are tr still trying to fin finesse that, still trying to figure out how to follow the golden thread and not get over like, burned out, but also not just, you know, be too lackadaisical? <laughs> right. And that's always, uh, you know, that's one of the sort of the shadow dynamics of, you know, the 60s that still kind of going on about, you know, not forcing things and, you know, just like going with the flow kind of a deal. And there's definitely times for that. And there's definitely times for pushing. But kind of the way it is for me, to me what a golden thread is, when I would be teaching in people about plant relationship and to work with plants in the field, and I would just say, well, walk out, just walk out there and walk around for a while until you come across a plant that for whatever reason draws your attention more than any of the others, and then sit with that plant, and then I'd have them do all this stuff. But that's that thing, that sort of strange dynamic where for some reason as we move through the world, something will catch our attention in a certain kind of way, and we have this feeling response to it. We might say it has more of an its interest level is higher to us, or the color is enhanced, or there's just something about it. We feel more childlike when we see it. We go, ooh, and we want to go kind of be with it. So that's one way of talking about the touch of a golden thread when you're working with plants. And that's often the way, like with music, you'll be just doodling around, and all of a sudden you'll get a, a series of notes maybe, and you go, ooh, and there's something about it that just resonates more, and you begin to follow that. Or in writing, in writing what I, um, I throw a lot of snow at the wall, like I'll, um, I want to write something, and I won't be really sure, I know kind of where I'm going, and I'll just start writing, 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 and all of a sudden, just a phrase, a sentence, a phrase, a series of words will emerge that have more juice to them, and then when I read them, I get almost like a, a goosebump response to it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then all of the rest of it goes away, and I start from there, because that's the thread mm -hmm. that I begin to follow, right? And the books I'm working on now, I didn't really have this option before, but they're taking years of work rather than, than yeah. the year that I used to spend on them. But uh, um, but anyway, so I'll follow it, follow it, follow it, and then it just gets dry, you know. It just, it's not working, and there's this, the stink of my prose is more than I can bear, you know. <laughs> I come back to it the next day, and I bang my head against the wall, and it doesn't work, and the next day. And finally, every time what I do is I just go, ah, I stop, and I would always do something physical. And because I had this really bad habit of buying broken homes, you know, I suppose kind of, I was trying to always fix the broken home of my family, you know, oh. exactly. yeah. but I would buy these broken homes, and then I, because I was such a good um, fine woodworker, and then I would just start, like, turning the whole home into this work of art that I had, um, because I, you know, as my son said once, he goes, you know, Dad, 
<laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I never really saw it from your point of view before. <laughs> so, so, um, so I would just go work on some part of the house, you know, and that was the kind of physical work that always appealed the most to me. And I'd making be making cabinets, or I'd be building a wall, or I'd be putting a bathroom in, or whatever I would be doing. And in that thing, when you do that kind of work, and I'm sure both of you have had this experience before, mm-hmm. that after a while, everything else would just go away. The only yeah. thing that would be there for me would be working with this piece of wood, and what does it want to become, and how am I going to set it in that location? And I would just be immersed in this whole other world, and I would do that for a while, and there was this thing, and of course my body produced all different kinds of endorphins and chemicals and relaxations, and all this other stuff would happen. I would be grounding myself in the in the physical world and in my body, and I'd be doing that. My mind is totally taken off the writing, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes the solution to the place I was stuck. Mm. This happens for writers all the time. Yeah. You know, they, as my friend John Dunning, the mystery writer, would say, he goes, no, you just have to walk away sometimes and let the basement figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, yeah. And so that's that thing, and I find even with the new books I'm working on that I can go so far and it'll be like butter coming out of my pen, and then all of a sudden it just stops. I'll push it a little, it doesn't work, and then I'll just walk away from it, and it's almost now as if, I have to mature enough to get to the place where I can understand the next thing I, I need to say. It's mm-hmm. a very different experience. And all of a sudden one day, and I might go a couple of weeks now where I'm thinking about it, but I'm not doing anything. I'm doing other stuff. And all of a sudden I'll get up and I'll go, oh, and there it is. And then I go do it. So that's after a while. I mean, I, my I started writing in earnest in 1990. I knew I was going to be a writer when I was a teenager, and so when I was 20, I bought a portable typewriter and a book on touch typing and taught myself how to do it, and then realized, thankfully, I had nothing to say. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I spared the world from a lot of crap, you know. And then, and then uh, when I was 38, I guess, something like that, I forget. I was older. I decided I want to better start now, or now or never. And um, mm-hmm. so, about 1990, how old would I have been then? I would have been, yeah, 38. And um, so, my first book came out in January of '96. It was sold in fall of '94. And um, and it just takes a long time to trust. Yeah. You know, for me to learn to trust that I knew what I was doing, because in the beginning I was a terrible writer. I mean, I was really, really bad. I was rank. And <laughs> I, the editors I had told, you know, taught me a lot. Uh, at this point now, I don't like editors. I don't work with editors anymore, just mm-hmm. proofreaders. And, um, but uh, at a certain point, I realized I knew more than the editors that were editing me. Yeah. And because I was going this place that they couldn't see mm-hmm. um, with their training and their MFA degrees and stuff. And, right. um, and then more and more and more all of the time, I began to trust the process because it never let me down. Mm-hmm. William Stafford, the poet, said, 
He said, people think, you know, he taught poetry for 30 years or something at uh, Lewis and Clark College, I think is where he was. And he said, uh, most people think I'm teaching poetry, but I'm not. I'm teaching a process. Whether these students ever write a poem or not is irrelevant. If they learn the process, it will change everything about their life. Mm, yeah. And yeah. so this process of following that golden thread, of letting this this whatever it is emerge into form, and learning how to honor the form and shape it, that's the whole point. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really good advice um, for authors and musicians and herbalists. herbalists in general. So yeah, thank you. And the imagery, yeah, the imagery of you building different houses and having a chop saw in your living room kind of brings up the question of um, homesteading. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little about like what homesteading is like for you now after someone who's been doing it for so long. What's it like well, mostly, mostly for me. I mean, when I first went out on my own, I just, you know, moved to Colorado and when I was 20 and I'd heard, I mean, this all the back to the land movement was still going on in the 72, you know, and um, people, you know, these guys said, hey, you know, there's all these abandoned places in the mountains, and uh, if you find out who owns them, you know, sometimes they'll just let you live in them, and if you fix it up, you know, I mean, that's how we were back then, you're like, hey, let's go do this, let's you know, do it. I'm a poet, I can do this, can you do know, it. and so I found, you know, this, you know, 7 by 14 foot abandoned school teacher's cabin, and I found who owned it and said, can I live in there? And they thought I was completely crazy. And they said, yeah, and let's get all of our nose, go ahead. You know, and that's where I first began. There was no electricity or running water or anything. And I just thought it was about the coolest thing that ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. So um, now I'd be, I'd be going, no, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> but, but when I was 20, it was a great adventure. And I lived there for three years and then, um, did it again kind of with another cabin for a year and then I ended up in the city for uh, far too long and then and uh, what was it yeah and lived in the city for 10 years or so and then I began it again and uh, um, bought that land up at 9,000 feet and built a house up there um, but then after that, we we moved from there. I just began finding, you know, um, these places that had been treated badly or that hadn't been loved in a long time and began to change it. So for me, I don't think it was homesteading in the classic sense where people think of, of when people think of homesteading, they kind of think of like, you know, you're out somewhere and you're having gardens and, you know, llamas and stuff. And, you know, I can't, I can't grow anything. I mean, I literally cannot grow anything. Wild plants are sort of my deal. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I have like, what would I, the opposite of a green thumb, whatever that is, I have it. So, um, a really sad thumb. <laughs> it's good for writing. So, yeah. So, but for me, the it was a meditation on the relationship of human being to habitation. And um, I lived for, I trained for a couple of years in Denver at the beginning of the um, big restoration boom for old mansions and stuff that was going 
uh, gorgeous Victorian homes. And the first one was had been built in the 1880s, this four-story Victorian mansion, and uh, been chopped up into apartments. And so I got hired as a laborer and uh, never worked so hard in my life. And the the guy that the project manager on it, I mean, he knew everything. He was really, really good. He was also the only person that could make you feel guilty for taking 30 minutes for lunch. It was really, <laughs> it was really ruthless. Wow. And I was the only person that got hired on that job that didn't get fired. For some reason, he just wow. didn't fire me. And, um, but I learned a huge amount. I mean, he was a blacksmith. He had a blacksmith studio, and he made all his own carving chisels. And, wow. um, I mean, he just really knew what he was doing, and I absorbed um, that kind of life from all the men I worked with there, watched what they did, and mm-hmm. learned how to integrate it in my body. So what I learned how to do was really to be interactive with house, with home. Oh, yeah. And the thing I've noticed now is how few people actually know how to do anything. Um, I mean, I was reading this article a while back, some rock and roll musician um, from the 80s was really pissed. He was kind of like, what is, what is it with all these young men? They don't even know how to hang a picture. What the hell's happened? You know? <laughs> but it, it was like, it's like, yeah, the, um, you know, I learned to be able to build a house from the foundation all the way to the roof and all of the furniture that was in it. And that, used to be kind of a common knowledge base. So to me, there's a, when I think of homesteading in that sense, what you're doing is you're establishing an interactive relationship with earth and home and living. You're not just a consumer anymore. You're a maker. Yeah. Yeah. And the home has its own spirit in a way. It definitely has its own spirit, and that's what I would find when I would find these broken homes, that I would go in, I would let it tell me what it wanted to be, because, you know, it's like you don't want to glue a, you know, a silk purse onto a pig's head, you know, <laughs> start working yeah. with it, and then there's a certain kind of aesthetic harmony that happens when you start to remodel the house, which is different it's not really, you know, gentrification is when you glue a silk purse onto a sow's ear, you know. But this other stuff, what you're doing is you're um, in allowing the aesthetic core of a place to reemerge from its years of neglect. and mm, yeah. um, So that when you're inside the place, you're surrounded by this tremendous aesthetic heart that in your bad days uplifts and holds you. And um, and it renews the sense of self. And I think that's one of the things that's really been lost when the brutalist architecture movement began to occur in the United States. Yeah, so, so bad. It was just square boxes and stuff. <laughs> so and ugly. Very ugly, but living inside those places, you begin to take on the climate of mind yeah. of those places and the climate yeah. of heart, and it's by nature unhealthy. And, yeah, I, uh, I, I find it very hard to be happy in a place like that. Yeah. Well, we've had a really wonderful conversation. I'm so glad that you uh, agreed to do this. I was really nervous beforehand. <laughs> oh, that's, that's kind of you. I hadn't actually done a 
an interview in quite a long time because I've been not feeling very well. But this went really well, and I deeply appreciate you asking me and and going through what was necessary to make it happen. Yeah, well, I'm I'm really honored that you uh you you agreed to do it because you you haven't been on very many interviews lately, and I think that your your voice is something that a lot of people you know can, can be very helpful for a lot of people, especially now. Um, Thank you. I guess <laughs> you're welcome. I guess the last question would be like, what are you working on now? You said you were working on several books. Um, what are those about? And like, what are you excited about for the future? Well, I'm working on a book called Becoming Vegetalista, which is about nice. um, essentially the apprenticeship with the green world. And I, the first fourth of it was released in the limited edition book that's sort of out there. If you look around, I have copies. There was only about 600 copies printed intentionally and I'm about halfway through that book now and I'm working on a book called Earth Grief the journey into and through ecological loss um, which is about three quarters done at this point and you know I was just noted that actually was a subcategory of the Vegetalista book it just sort of showed up all of its own and mm. I wrote the first third of it really fast over a couple of months and then it began to demand deeper thought, but the, um, you know, because I was just seeing this all the time before the coronavirus thing hit, every day there was an article on climate grief, or ecological, feelings of ecological loss, mm -hmm. and I started looking at the stuff, and it was, the material on it was just terrible, it was, you know, writer, um, newspaper columnists, or academics, and nobody was you'd read the stuff all day, but you could never feel grief in any of the things they wrote. And then I realized I'd been dealing with the whole concept of that grief, of that loss of, of forests and ecosystems and plants and everything for a long time. And so just the book just sort of began to emerge of its own. And uh, I'm hopefully, I was, I'm not going to release it till after the coronavirus thing is kind of handled. Mm -hmm. Nobody's, everybody's interested in other things. They're interested yeah. in corona grief, not ecological loss right now. But probably spring of 2022. And, uh, okay, cool. And the least the book will take as long as it takes. I have no idea how long that's yeah. going to take. Let it, let it show you. But that's sort of my focus. Just, you know, I'm a, a nearly 70 and I'm, you know, working on finishing up the things I need to finish up and um, looking at this last stage of life, the fourth season of my life, and um, orienting myself um, with what needs to happen in that period of time, which is really different than the middle age period that came before. And uh, so it's, uh, that's sort of where I'm at. Well... Again, thank you very much, Stephen. Um, I hope that you, you know, you, you're well and you stay well. Um, I know you've been struggling with some issues, and I hope that you know you do. You know, you you're you're here for a lot, lot you know, a long time. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Stephen. This has been really fun. Um, I knew you were funny, but you're you're really hilarious. You cracked me up like several times. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, I mean, the thing is, life is hard enough without humor. Yeah. <laughs> we got to learn. We have to still laugh about stuff because mm -hmm. a lot of the time, it's just what that 
and love gets us through. It may sound a bit trite, but that's just the way it is. I hear that, yeah. Yeah, so thank you so much again. And uh, maybe we'll get a chance to talk again sometime. That would be great. Sure. Be be well. You too. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.